and welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. I'm Mitchell Wolf, your host today, and I'm here with my forever co-host, James Burns, editor-in-chief of Super Jump. Hey, James, what's up? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I was, to- <laughs> I was told that on my intro to the last episode uh, in which I explained my situation regarding the Thomas fire that... I sounded so tired, and guess what? I really, really was, but I don't want to sound tired anymore because I'm back in my house, and the the neighborhood that I'm in is no longer under mandatory evacuation. If you could see the spikes in my audio, you would know I'm not joking about this. This <laughs> is the Super Jump Podcast, and we have defeated fire. Back with a vengeance. Back with a vengeance. <laughs> We're, they call us the Icemen because of our... Uh, aggression against fire that's who we are and that's who we're sticking to and our love of ice cubes and cool drinks oh yeah we just love those and also the character Iceman from top gun we're just <laughs> all of the ice related things uh just just by coincidence we turned out to really really like all of it so this is the super jump podcast if you haven't heard us before um well if you haven't heard the last episode specifically I live in Ventura, California, and my house was involved in the Thomas Fire. It did not burn down. Some houses just down the street from me, as close as four houses away, right down the street, did burn down. That's how close I was. So I was out of my house for about ten days, but not anymore. Uh, so that's that's that whole thing, if you were confused about that, about why we were the Icemen. Uh, if you weren't confused about the Iceman and you know exactly what the Super Jump podcast is all about, you will know that we usually take one topic in video gaming or video gaming adjacent and uh, we explore it. It can be something very specific like a deep dive into a, a specific game. We've done one for Sonic Mania or it can be something totally vague like, uh, James, what's something vague we've done? Something vague we've done. Oh, something are, the, vague. Are, are the Game Awards vague or not vague? Sure, that's vague. <laughs> we did we did walking simulators. That was pretty. Vague. We did walking. Yeah, that's a one. That's one of them. There you go. I uh, <laughs> I put you on the spot because I could not put myself on the spot. I had this is the eleventh episode, but for some reason, all ten previous episodes except for Sonic Mania totally escaped me. <laughs> um, that's okay. <laughs> but this is an episode about things not escaping you do you like what i did with that segue i thought I it was like pretty it. good very good very uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> this is about the collection of games many people have games collections uh and many people just have a couple games but no matter which kind of person you are there has been a, ki- a time in your life probably where you've owned a video game and that's what we're going to be talking about today so first, James, just to just to start off, I want to talk about your game collecting um, strategy. Let's call it because <laughs> you were the one that recommended this episode top, topic to me, and it's a great episode. Uh, why don't yeah? Why don't you talk about your game collection? Well, I was excited about this this episode because um, I mean I use the word collection, but at the moment it it feels a lot more like just straight out hoarding. It it's really. Like if you looked at my game collection in quotes at the moment, um, you you would probably say that I'm a good candidate for an episode of that TV show Hoarders. Mm. Um, you know, if it ever comes to Australia, they should be knocking on my door. Um, 
I, I at the so I don't really have a particular strategy for collecting. I I guess what I would say is um, I'm kind of filling in the gaps in in terms of like the games that I never got as a kid. If that makes any sense. No, that makes total sense. I do the same thing. So like in our family, we were very. I guess we were very Nintendo-centric, so we had, you know, like an NES, Super NES, and pretty much every Nintendo console, and, like, we we all played Nintendo, my dad played Nintendo a little bit as well, and that's probably why he was happy to kind of fund our addiction for all those years, but there was a ton of stuff I missed out on as a kid, and a lot of it was because, like, I was the only one that was interested in it. And at the time, it was astronomically expensive. Um, like, there were so many things I kind of lusted after in gaming magazines that I had no chance of ever affording. Especially and, in Australia, I imagine. Yeah, like, you know, things were expensive here, but that was... We were lucky to get them as well. Like, there was there was a lot of stuff we didn't actually get. Um, so part of the collecting now is kind of going back and buying those things that I really wanted as a kid that I could never afford that are now in some cases ridiculously cheap actually um, and also importing stuff so buying stuff that just never came out here that I always wanted you know if I if we can talk about price for a second it's pretty crazy to me that Although some things have escalated in price since their release, um, most versions of Super Smash Brothers, for example, go for higher than sixty dollars. They, they've they've accumulated prestige in price yeah. because of how hard they are to obtain. But other things have just gotten so cheap. Old games are so cheap, and my assumption when I was a kid was because I I was uh, basing this off the sale of comic books that they would get so expensive at a certain point that if i held on to my games they would accumulate in value and that didn't quite happen and i'm not sure why yeah um i mean it's interesting it's it seems to be uh, and i i can't say that i deeply understand it but it, it seems to be just a straight out um supply and demand problem so one thing I notice that happens with game prices, especially kind of older retro stuff, is the prices will kind of fluctuate depending on the general interest in a certain console or a certain publisher at a certain point in time. Um, so there'll be periods where games on certain consoles are really expensive and the price goes up and then it will drop again after a few years. It almost seems to be like retro game collecting goes in waves where there'll be a particular craze on a certain console. Um, And so, for example, like at the moment, um, if you go and collect stuff for Wii U, which is not retro, but, you know, it's not not really a a current gen console. um, If you go and collect for Wii U, it's, it's relatively cheap compared to, you know, some of the really old consoles. Um, sure. And, it was and low demand. Stuff. It, yeah. It's recent enough that people that wanted it already have it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, in some ways, like if you're looking to build a game collection, and and you're you know interested in Nintendo, 
Um, Wii U is not a bad place to start, actually, because you can start to build up the collection in a fairly affordable way now. Um, and I, I mean, no one has a crystal ball, but I would say that there will come a time where Wii U and Wii U games are going to be a lot more expensive. And I think... Oh, I'm sure. I'm and, sure. And I think part of that is is just even stuff like the gamepad. Um, like if you if you look for spare gamepads now on eBay, they can be very, very expensive because they were never sold separately, I don't think. Um, I believe that's true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Wii U is an interesting case because it's already gaining momentum inside of some Nintendo circles that um, maybe they don't necessarily agree with everything that the Switch is all about. And this happens with every console generation. There's some rejection of the new thing. And the thing that you just had was like, oh, no, that was better. Yeah. Um, and, and the Wii U is interesting because it does have a lot of great games that um, not all of them are going to be ported to the Switch, and some of them will lose gamepad functionality. Super Mario Maker comes to mind. Mm. That will probably never be the same thing that it was on Wii U. Yeah. Unless there's another two-screen system in the future of Nintendo, and I, I don't believe there is right now. That's not where I think they're headed. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> So, so yeah, I, I can imagine that kind of thing getting really expensive really qu- quickly. That said, I also thought these other things were going to get expensive really quickly, and they just weren't. <laughs> and they like, just weren't. Yeah. Look, look at the N64, the Ocarina of Time gold cartridge, right? Mm. That was a limited run special color of a game that was called the greatest game of all time by many outlets. And it's for a system that did not sell exceptionally well compared to some other competitors uh, that it had. Like, the Super Nintendo sold better, the PlayStation 1 sold better, the PlayStation 2 sold better. Yeah. That game is still, like, 40 bucks at a store. Yeah. How do you predict that? That should not be the case, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it depends as well on... One thing I've noticed... And I'm mostly that there's a ton of different ways that you can buy retro games. I I tend to use either eBay or there's a website in Australia called Gumtree, which is like eBay, same sort of thing. Um, and and one thing. So speaking of that case in particular, one thing that will make the price shoot up majorly is if you have a complete in box version of the game. So if oh, you're just yeah. selling the cartridge. You know, you, you might, it'll be relatively affordable, relatively cheap. Uh, but the minute you have a box, and especially if you have a box and manual, then you, you're really starting to get into much more expensive territory. So what, I, what I'm trying to do, and it's a very slow process because it's a very expensive process, is if I buy a retro game now, I deliberately try to look for a copy that is either complete in box or, and this is really rare, it just, it kind of depends on luck, I think. I try to get a factory sealed copy in Mm. some cases, if I can. 
sometimes it's just so expensive that it's just not worth it at all. It has to be a game that I really, really want. Um, you know what I think is part of that? Why that's so expensive compared to manual and box and game, which should probably be around the same rarity mm. if you never like opened it. Um, GameStop in America. I don't know if you have this problem with, uh, with your... Do you have EB Games in Australia? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't know if you have this problem there, but they open the games. Um, they will take the factory seal off, and a lot of the times what you're looking at on shelves are games without plastic wrap on them anymore. Yeah. Um, or without... Or with a different kind of plastic wrap that they put on their, themselves. And I'm not talking about used games. Mm. I'm talking about new games they will open it up and sometimes remove the disc and put it in one of their binders yeah. uh, so they can put it back in the case when you when you buy it, which frustrates me a little bit. Um, you'd think that if it's their entire it thing that they do, they could make some room for the cases. But uh, but yeah, that's that's what they do. And I, 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 I get a little nervous every time I see that happening at a GameStop. Um, it's honestly part of why I don't love to go to GameStop anymore. Mm. Yeah, because they're they're uh, maybe not changing the value of it now, mm. but that game will be a very different value than if it kept its shrink wrap. If if a few factors apply to it in the future. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if I mean obviously for for disc based games. Um, you know, games on DVD and Blu-ray, they're doing that. They do that here as well. Uh, I know they do it for Nintendo Switch games um, where they keep the little game cards in sleeves, you know, in a drawer. But, and I'm, I'm really stretching my memory here, but if I think way back to like the Super Nintendo days or even before that, I, I could be mistaken, but I don't remember them ever like separating the cartridge from the box. I, I, I do seem to remember like buying a game that was actually sealed and had everything in the box. And they would, and I assume they just had them sitting on the shelf. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really remember it clearly enough, but I definitely don't remember anyone kind of going to a drawer and pulling out a like an NES cartridge or something. But maybe that's just in my mind maybe that didn't really happen well i i would i would assume that you're right because taking out an n64 cartridge or a super nintendo cartridge and putting mm. it under your desk doesn't exactly save space no i mean i i, I mean they... a little bit but the the cartridges are big and the packaging is still like the same size so it's not that much space you're saving well i assume they also do it for anti-theft reasons as well Right. You know, um, but yeah, I, I don't remember it ever being that way. So like if you, if you look online and especially if you look to buy slightly older games, so I should qualify slightly older because it's easy for me to forget that everyone is not the same age as me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Like, you know, there are, there are many, many people out there who, who see GameCube as a retro console and I'm like, Oh my god, that's such a new console! What are you talking about? Um, yeah. So, so when I talk about older, I guess for for me that that really means like NES, 
Super NES era. So like late 80s, early 90s, because that's when... Um, that's when I sort of started playing games. Um, and, you know, like NES was my first console. So if you want to feel old, um, <laughs> I, I got a GameCube for my, um, I believe I was eight years old, uh, that Christmas. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, let's just pause. I'm going to take some deep breaths here. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting because it also kind of, um, it, it makes me wonder, like, when it comes to game collecting and, like, going back to that question of our approaches and strategy for game collecting, um, I, I've known a few people kind of in my age group who, when they think about game collecting, they, they're, they're kind of like me in the sense that they tend to go right back to stuff in the 80s and the early 90s that they missed. And I guess it is about, you know, the stuff we missed as kids. Sure. But for people that are younger and especially people that kind of grew up in the 3D era of of consoles, like I I wonder if their game collecting is any different because it is... Well, that is is me. Yeah, yeah. So what's like... Are you kind of a, a really active game collector or is it just something you do now and then or... I'm not. Um, like you, it, it's things that I missed when I was a kid or things that I owned and then foolishly sold back to GameStop for $9. Um, one thing that I had a tendency to do was um, really want one of my friends to play a game that I had. So I would give it to them and then just never get it back. Yeah. So So games like that... And games that I I like the franchise that it's from now, but I didn't really know about it so much back then. Uh, for example, I'm a huge Zelda fan now. Uh, while it was while I was actually going through them, I did not touch Wind Waker or Twilight Princess. I I didn't really know two. I wasn't in that mindset yet. Yeah. So I I went back for those, and that that's a cool thing in in my opinion to 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 go back to. Um, but for certain, for certain games and especially games that get older than, let's say the Nintendo 64, I would probably prefer having a digital copy. There are some exceptions. Um, I have, I have, uh, a, a Zelda NES cart that I really, really adore having. Um, I have some Atari 2600 games that I am emotionally attached to. Yeah. But aside from the things that I already have, and and uh, that being the reason that I am emotionally attached to them, because I, I had that cartridge in some way, mm. I, I think I would rather just have a digital version of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, um, as someone who likes collecting uh, physical NES games, how do you feel about the NES Classic? Um, do, does it satisfy your collection of those games, or would you still rather have the original cartridge? Um, so I've got, uh, I've got a, an NES Classic and an SNES Classic um, that are kind of 
you know, hooked up to the TV and kind of ready to go. Um, and, and they are definitely, to actually play those games, they're um, kind of, you know, the most convenient way to do it, I guess. Um, and, and I still see a lot of value in having them. Um, but my collecting is part of it. Part of it is around games that I will play, and part of it is really just around having a collection of, of certain games. So, to give you an example, um, I've got a fairly big collection of Famicom games, um, and and they are um, they're all. They're all complete in box. Um, some of them are wow. still factory sealed, actually. Whoa. Um, I, I have uh, a copy. I have a brand new, quote unquote, copy of the original 1985 Super Mario Brothers for Famicom with the book and everything. That's incredible. Um, and I, a lot of them I was just lucky to buy because I like one of them I bought as a someone. Um, there was a, a guy in Japan selling them as a lot. He was just getting rid of a ton of these games and a lot of them were factory sealed. Um, so I just bought the lot from him. Um, so those are games that I I have actually played them. Um, I have a... I have So I've got like a, a PAL NES. So, you know, PAL is the European and Australian format right. NES. I've got a PAL NES, but I've also got... Um, a console called the AVS. Um, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the, the company that makes it. It's it's like a clone console. Um, hmm. And it's... it's oh, how do I explain this? It, Was it's it Chinese? A, no, it's, it's made by uh, a guy over in the US. Um, huh. Oh, yeah. this is a recent thing, isn't it? Fairly recent, yeah. Um, I, I think I've heard of this. And, and the really cool thing about it is it, it's not, and I don't know the technical details of this, but I know that you can, you can emulate hardware. So you can, you can kind of simulate the hardware or you can actually, um, you can actually create hardware that will natively run the game, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and this AVS console natively runs the game. It actually runs... Famicom and NES games and it's region free and you can kind of plug in your you can plug in like a real NES controller to it so it's a fairly authentic experience um but but of course you know it it's it runs on HDMI um you can use it with an HD TV um it it does a really beautiful job at upscaling the image um that's cool so that sort of stuff's really great cuz you can play the original cartridge um, and, and get a fairly authentic experience that way. But a lot of the games are literally just, um, I was going to say on display. They're kind of half on display at the moment. Um, in your collection. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I wouldn't expect you to open up that Famicom Super Mario Brothers. Oh, it's, it's open, but it's not a, um, that one wasn't factory sealed. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked a little bit about how stores and uh, the buying of games will in- mm-hmm. impact our our consumption of them. But I really want to dive into the digital collection of games because for a lot of people, that 
is the modern game collecting. Mm. Uh, in, in my world, in my worldview, if I can get, if they ever decide to do this, my, my 10 favorite NES games and my 10 favorite Super Nintendo games and put them on the Switch, I would be fairly content with that. Um, maybe a few other things too would be necessary, but I I would I would be satisfied with that existing. I I don't think I would need that much more than that. You know. Mm. Um, oh, fun fact. Uh, th- this is a bit of a, a tangent, but th- this will mess you up. Maybe I've never owned either a Super Nintendo or a Super Nintendo cartridge at all ever. Um, I've played a bunch of Super Nintendo games, all exclusively through Virtual Console or mm. shady, shady stuff, or <laughs> uh, friends that have had them. But yeah. I've never once in my life owned a Super Nintendo cartridge. I feel like that's a weird era. It's like right before when I started gaming, so it's yeah. uh, it's the one I kind of missed out on the most. Um, and I I'm very happy to play digital versions of those games um it's it's certain games specifically that i would love a cartridge of to display hey i'm i'm on your side game in in, you're old (laughs) uh you've been called outdated by some people i don't believe it i believe that you've stood the test of time i'll frame you and put you on a wall yeah that's that's my feeling toward it um other than the fact that many times when games are made digitally available, they're altered in some way. Uh, it's often no fault of the developer, but um, Donkey Kong 64 is a good example of this. Mm. When it came to the Wii U Virtual Console as a downloadable Nintendo 64 game, some issues happened with the gameplay. Um, all the vector graphics were up because that's what vector graphics do. Uh, and that looked nice, so that was good. Um, but that's already a minor change. And if you're authentic and, and and you want that real, what it actually was at the time experience of Donkey Kong 64, you didn't get it. But that's fine for most people because it's still mm. something that's on the whole better. What's not fine is the fact that Donkey Kong 64 has this, um, it has this protection against frame rate lag. It is a very environment-heavy game on a console that's not particularly good at that. Mm. And what happens is when there's too many things on screen and the frame rate starts to go down, the game will artificially increase the speed of Donkey Kong's movements mm-hmm. to compensate for the fact that it's running at a slower frame rate. So you don't actually see anything different when the frame rate is lowered, which is clever uh, if you are making a game for exactly one system where it will never be put into an environment it's not used to. But yeah. on the Wii U, the processing power was obviously so much higher, so much greater, that it did it just did not work well. When you would go into those situations where the game would detect that there was going to be frame rate lag, there actually wasn't frame rate lag and Donkey Kong would just move super fast, and all of a sudden you jump through entire stages. Um, and and it would be hard to, like, 
precisely land on something because you're just going so fast in the air. Uh, stuff like that. That's an extreme example, of course, but mm. I, I, I suppose that's an example of why you would want the original version of a thing. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really good example. Um, and I think for a lot of people who grew up with certain games, <clears throat> um, there is there is the convenience factor of playing like a digital re-release or something like that. And the quality can obviously vary there, but there are some people who really just want to have that original experience. And if you think of it on a scale, you know, the most, the most original experience you can have is obviously with the original game, the original hardware. And if you're really dedicated, um, a CRT television as well, <laughs> Yeah. Um, where, where you actually will get a far better kind of um, out-of-the-box picture. You know, that's the way the game was actually intended to be displayed. Um, where it starts getting interesting, and, and this is something I'm, I'm kind of halfway through navigating at the moment, I'm, I'm just trying to work out the best way to do this, is, um, is when you want to take a bunch of classic consoles that were designed for CRT t- uh, televisions and display them on HD televisions. Um, that's That can be a really challenging and in some cases really expensive thing to do. But uh, like in my case, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people, there's just no room for like a big CRT television. You know, like there's it's just not something I've really got room for. Um, in the house so I want to connect them up to like an existing HD screen Um, but there are multiple ways you can do that and to do it in a way that's going to preserve the quality and give you the best result is unfortunately fairly expensive right Um, Um, so I haven't quite jumped that hurdle yet I have on my desk that I'm talking to you through. The computer is on my desk in the center of it. On the right side of my desk is a CRT TV. Yeah. Um, and my desk is facing my regular TV. I've definitely... I'm, I'm definitely ridiculous. I have far too many TVs, uh, <laughs> even if it's just two. Uh, this actually has gotten me really excited about the idea of a 4K, a 4K TV because unlike the jump between a CRT TV and an HD TV, a 4K television has exactly four times as many pixels as a 1080p television, and it has the exact same uh, shape of array of pixels that there won't be an issue Mm. going from uh, 1080p to a 4K television like there was in previous television jumps in the past, which I'm I'm pretty excited about. I'm I'm glad that they figured out that that is a problem for some people. Yeah. Uh, so I don't need to have three televisions in the future. I can get rid of the middle <laughs> one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. What were you gonna say? No, I was, I was just gonna agree with you. Yeah. It, it because it is a um, for for collectors that are kind of building up a substantial collection of older games it is it it does really make the difference between actually being able to play and enjoy the games and not 
um, having the right display. And it can be, it can be tricky uh, if you then start thinking about buying consoles from multiple regions as well. Especially, oh, yeah. especially if you're oh, from yeah. a PAL region and you're buying NTSC stuff from Japan and the US, you, you start getting into this like minefield of, of complexity. And, um, you know, there are people who kind of, who, who make me look like a casual who really just go crazy and have, have researched it and invested in it and they have everything set up beautifully. But to do that really takes a lot of commitment that, that most collectors I think probably don't have. Yeah, a lot of the people on the IGN podcasts, especially their Nintendo-focused podcasts, amaze me. Because I, I, I hearing about what they collect, mm. I just don't... How do you keep money from your job? It just <laughs> It seems like everything that they get from their paycheck just goes straight into their collection. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's amazing um, but there's a difference between individuals collecting things and a community trying to maintain something so I, I think that's pretty similar to what you were talking about before with your AVS system mm. um, that is a community driven effort to maintain the playability of games as they were in the future because the original NES systems are already failing pretty consistently, right? They aren't going to stay around much longer unless you know how to repair yours, which could be a pretty complicated process. Um, so there, there's a lot of debate right now about how video games should be conserved. Do you have any feelings on that one way or the other? I think my overriding feeling is just that I, 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 I feel as though there is not enough. How do I put this? Uh, By conserved, I meant preserved. Don't yeah, you, yeah. Delete your tweets. I, I got it. <laughs> I got it. I feel like there's not nearly enough focus on this. Um, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people in the community who have become collectors because they're not collectors in the sense that they just have all these games they want to play. They've become collectors because they almost have this feeling of, you know, I, I want to buy these games and, and keep them safe and keep them preserved and maybe they don't feel like anyone else is really doing that. Um, I, know sure. that in, I know that in the US there is a big video game museum, which I think is, is a really necessary thing. Um, I'm not aware of anything like that in Australia. I mean, we've had, we've had certain exhibitions and that sort of thing, but I, I, I don't know, I don't know if there's sort of a permanent museum for video games. Um, I would say that here, to the extent that video games are preserved, they're either preserved by, um, like, I, I think there's a subsection of our, um, like our national film archive that has some sort of game-related content. Uh, it would be very, very small, though. And I know that some of the publishers, like uh, Nintendo Australia, have, for lack of a better word, a vault. Um, and they open this vault now and then and post photos on Facebook. Um, and, mm. and they... It must be a giant vault because... 
Is it a they, literal vault? Oh, it's probably just <laughs> it's it's probably a cupboard with some mops in the corner, you know. Probably, <laughs> okay. probably a janitor's cupboard. Um, no, but but I mean, I remember years and years ago when I did work experience there, they did have like a big. They had kind of a big storage area with um, with with their own games that went right back, you know, way, way, way back to the NES. Um, and they're all insanely well preserved and like good as new, complete in box, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, wow. And it must be bigger than I thought though, because if you subscribe to their Facebook page, they will often do kind of nostalgia-related posts and they'll do a photo with, like, they did one recently to celebrate Doom and they had all of the, like, different versions of Doom that had ever been released on a Nintendo console in Australia and they're all boxed and, like, you know, they're all in perfect condition and they do that regularly um, with all different franchises. So uh, I think... A lot of companies have taken it upon themselves to preserve their own history, which is great, but I, I kind of wish there was more focus on that um, in, in terms of the broader community. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. It's hard to put yourself in the mindset that these things that are being sold at Target and Walmart will actually ever be uh, like hard to find. I've been walking into a Target for about two years now, and I've been seeing the same Animal Crossing amiibos. Yeah. Um, I just can't imagine a future in which those aren't there, <laughs> um, even though they that future should have arrived probably a year ago. Um, it, it, it's hard to say. And there are museums like the one that you mentioned earlier, but that's still just one place. Yeah, you know that's that's not necessarily accessible. And then you go there, and you can't just play all of the games. A lot of them are behind glass, and even if they weren't, you can't just stay there all day and play a game to completion. Mm. Uh, as they were meant to be consumed as as playable, interactable experiences for the average player to get into. That doesn't seem like a great solution, but a, a slightly better solution, although much more illegal and probably less uh, respectful toward the original game, are a lot of online archives. There are um, emulation archives and, and ROM databases that have a lot of the easier to emulate games readily available at any time. Um, any game that's ever been on PC is on on these things. Most mm. NES games, most Super Nintendo games, most uh, Game Boy Advance, and even DS games, which I find pretty impressive considering that the DS is all wonky in, in <laughs> terms of its uh, controls and all that. It, it's, it's amazing, but these things aren't necessarily that old in certain circumstances. Even, uh, in, like, less than 25 years old in, in certain circumstances, the original creator is still alive, would probably like money for that, uh, could feel very ripped off just from the existence of these online databases. How do you feel about that? 
Yeah, I feel really conflicted about it because there is there is a, a, a part of me that um, is sort of happy to know that somewhere, somehow, somewhere, these artifacts are being preserved. Um, but it it feels like um, it, it feels like it, it's it, it kind of comes back to what you said earlier about it being a respectful preservation. Um, you know, it, it feels um, it, it just feels like it's not the best way to preserve these games. I'm not quite sure how to how to articulate it, and I'm not quite sure what I would prefer to see um, other than museums popping up on every street corner. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I guess part of the answer is is for publishers to um, to make these archives available in a really convenient way and in a high quality way to kind of take business away from piracy. Um, and so, to that end, you know, one of the reasons that I haven't bought anything on Virtual Console for a very long time, I bought a couple of things on the original Wii, was because. I, I number one the emulation quality, particularly on Wii U, was terrible, uh, right. much much worse than it should have been. And secondly, you know what you really want is the ability to have your Nintendo account purchase a, a game, whatever that game is, that instance of a game, and have it follow you across multiple consoles. It should almost be a hardware agnostic thing. You know, you own the license or whatever, you know, you own that game, the copy of that game, and you can play it on all these devices and you just own it. Um, well, we've been talking about Nintendo, but the the company that has done this is Microsoft. Hmm. Uh, they're uh, Xbox original games, Xbox 360 games, and Xbox One games are now all playable on any kind of Xbox One that you have. Yeah. Um not all of them. I, I believe it's only a small number of original Xbox games at the moment and, and a pretty big number of Xbox 360 games. But it seems like the main big ones, uh, you know, your Halos, your your Gears of War, um, Voodoo Vince for some reason, all of these <laughs> have been uh, preserved and, and maintained. And you can play them on a console that came out this year. Yeah, that is amazing, but that is also incredibly difficult. Yeah, and Sony clearly doesn't even want to try. Um, N- Nintendo said that they're going to bring something that will allow you to play retro games in the future to Switch. Uh, they haven't done so yet. Sony hasn't doesn't have anything like that at all. Every time they want to put out a PS One game again, you need to get a remaster. Mm. Uh, which is a huge ordeal. It, it like it's not it's not no work at all. Um, a lot of times, allowing access to a ROM is pretty difficult, but it's nothing compared to what I'm sure is going into the recently announced medieval uh, mm. re- remaster. Yeah. So it it seems sometimes like removing the onus of preservation from the publisher is the way to do it and i don't know how you do that without getting into some shady territory yeah yeah you're right it's it's a really tricky problem and i mean we'll see what 
what happens with um, we'll see what happens with Nintendo's service next year. I, I think there is the potential that a subscription service could be quite workable if it just gives you access to everything. Right, um, that would be you know, that'd be really cool. Yeah, like you you pay your subscription fee and you just have access to everything. Um, and I mean, that's certainly the way music has gone. Uh, it, it might make sense for video games as well. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's a really tricky problem and I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what the answer is. Cause as you say, it's, it's, you can imagine that for a publisher to go back and it must've been a very expensive exercise for Microsoft to go back and kind of make all of these games, you know, as individual games work across all the hardware mm-hmm. uh, is not a trivial exercise. And I did read something recently about um, just just the idea that, that that strategy hasn't necessarily been turning into, um, like, you know, positive commercial results for Microsoft. So they've invested all of this time and money in this backward compatibility work. But I think the stats show that a very, very small number of people are actually running these games, these older games on, on the Xbox One. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's called into question the whole idea of should you just leave it and stop focusing on it and just work on the new stuff that you desperately need to sell this console, um, which, which is great. But for people like us, you know, who want to have that that preservation, um, it puts us back to square one again. Yeah, the uh, the Xbox One X is also selling at a loss, so I'm I'm not sure what their their aim is with a lot of their decisions and in, in terms of what they're putting effort into. Like backwards compatibility for the original Xbox is extremely hard to do and they managed to do it and I'm sure no one's going to really pay it that much attention. Um, all the power in the Xbox One X is expensive to produce and they're not making their money back. I don't know what's going on with Microsoft. It's an, They are an absolute anomaly. Um, but they have made a lot of cool things. It, it, it's cool that these things exist. Which I feel is kind of the way video game preservation is going to have to go. It can't be a commercial thing. Mm. uh, Because the amount of people that are going to care about it are a small group. Yeah. But they care so much. And it is important to maintain the art form. Uh, So we're we're heading toward the end of our conversation. I just wanted to, uh, as a fun little bit, talk about some of our favorite things in our collections. James, do you have anything that comes to mind? Your favorite thing in your game collection? Favorite thing? Um, probably two things I'd have to mention. One is uh, I've got a, a Japanese Virtual Boy, which wow. is in, in really, really good condition and still has its box and all the rest of it. Um, and, and it is actually fun to play for five minutes before you get a severe migraine. Um, it, <laughs> it is actually fun to play. Um, and I have the, some friends that swear by uh, Galactic Pinball yeah. for Virtual Console. They, yeah. they say it's one of the the most underrated gems of Nintendo's early uh, early excursions. Yeah, and it's it's just an interesting 
it's really interesting to go from playing Virtual Boy to playing PlayStation VR um, and, and just thinking about where Nintendo's mindset was with Virtual Boy. Um, I mean, there's a whole story around that, but um, I think it's definitely true to say it was way ahead of its time. It was just on a practical level, you know, in, in terms of price, they just couldn't really do what they needed to do with the technology. Uh, it was just, it, it was either non-existent or prohibitively expensive. Um, so, you know, that that's pretty much a museum piece. It, it is something that I, um, yeah. it is something I play now and then, but not very often. Um, the other one is, is a total museum piece because it's all in Japanese and it's an RPG and various people have apparently been working on a fan translation, but it's never been finished. I'm, I'm patiently waiting. I think the fan translation has been in the works for like a decade or something. Um, it's a game called Sega Gaga for Dreamcast. Huh. I've never and heard of it. I, I've got a, I have to send you a picture. I've got this like, this crazy, crazy, um, it was like a special edition of this game. It comes in this great big glossy white box and it's got like the game and it's got a, a t-shirt and it's got a little leather diary and all this random stuff in there. And um, it, it's, it's just a really, it's such a Sega game because it's basically about... Um, it's a game where you play as a game designer working at Sega. Oh wow! Um, and it's an RPG. It's a it's a JRPG, and and I'm gonna someone will have to correct me on this in the via email. I'm gonna forget the story here, but the long and short of it is you're you're going up at you know Sega's failing, and you're going up against this big evil corporation which is. They give it a different name, but it's basically a reference to Sony. And um, all of the developers in Sega of Japan's headquarters have sort of um, kind of lost their mojo, like they've lost their motivation. And you have to go through the building and and get everybody's motivation back by fighting them in turn-based battles throughout Sega's offices. <laughs> and huh. It's, it's really, really weird. And like there's this, it's got this beautiful, um, this beautiful like hand-drawn animation. So it's kind of got like anime style cutscenes, And there's like a, there's like a crazy cutscene where the Sega of Japan building, like the whole building opens up and this giant robot comes out of it to do battle with Sony. And like, it's really, really weird, really weird. And it came out, right at the end of the Dreamcast's life in Japan. Um, and it's just this bizarre, like, self-referential... And, and it's actually called uh, Sega Gaga, and then underneath it it says the Sega Simulation. Oh, okay. And it's this full JRPG. It's, it's really, really crazy. And I'm dying to play it, but, yeah, I've got to wait for a fan translation to, to play it. But you have it? Yeah. Wow. Um, some of my favorite things in, in my uh, game collection are not necessarily 
important to have in physical form. Mm. Uh, but I keep them around because of their, their sentimental value. Uh, one example is the GameCube collection of Zelda 1, Zelda 2, Ocarina of Time, and Majora's Mask all on one GameCube disc. Yeah. I got that because I asked a family member for Wind Waker for Christmas, and they apparently bought that game at GameStop, and the game that they included in that case was that Zelda collection, which is incredible. Um, Collections like that are much less appreciated nowadays than they were at the time, Mm. uh, because... That when I got that, it was still in the era of I think the Wii era when I got that. You could just download those games, and mm. that would be easy. But um, I, just just the idea of having that collection on disc—that's actually one of the things I don't have anymore. I gave it to a friend. That was a bad call. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think my favorite thing that I do have though is a a copy of banjo Tui and a copy of banjo kazooie both both cartridges um mm. they were given to me by my grandpa and uh, mm. i i played games with him a lot he mm. got an, a nintendo 64 to try to like relate to me and my cousins uh better and, and he got really good at these games he was speed running to a certain <laughs> extent uh donkey kong 64 he could get through the whole game 100 percent and like probably four and a half or five hours which is not necessarily speedrun level now but for an an older man in the early 2000s that was crazy yeah um but he he gave me those cartridges and since then i've gotten them signed both by the composer of the games uh grant kirkhope and the director of the games uh greg males Greg Mails being one of like my, my biggest game design heroes, really. Mm. Uh, and uh, I I didn't pick them up when I was evacuating my house. And until I realized that my house was fine, like the biggest thing I was concerned about was my health and safety in house, obviously. But like underneath that, the thing I really cared about was getting these cartridges uh, back and mm. making sure that they were safe. They're, they're kind of a big deal to me yeah that, uh, that's awesome that's really cool so we close out the show by looking up how many listener write-in emails we've usually gotten and the answer has so far been zero but we actually have one this time by the way if you want to be read on the show as a listener write-in you can do so at podcast at superjump.online the email again is podcast at superjumpon line sorry superjump.online i'll do it again just to make sure podcast at superjump.online if you want to be read on the show if you want to ask us a question if you want to make a comment if you want to give some feedback you can do so at that email address we actually have one this week but they did say that they don't want their name or like the specifics of what they said read on the show uh so i'm honoring that but just to make sure that you know you're heard out there one person uh wished me well after hearing that I was uh, I was displaced from my house during the fire, so thank you so much. It, it, it's a huge thing to know that people care out there. Uh, that that really lifted my spirits. 
So, something we do at the end of every episode is after-school activities. This is where we recommend the listener go do something else that isn't the Super Jump Podcast while they wait for the next episode of the Super Jump Podcast because we do only come out once every two weeks. James, would you like to go first or should I? I'm happy to go first. Mine's a pretty brief one. And it's just like on the back of everything we were saying about um, hooking up retro consoles to new TVs... There is a really great, really in-depth YouTube channel called My Life in Gaming. And they do a lot of in-depth kind of tutorials and videos about, um, you know, you can pick a particular console and what is the best way to get the best visuals and sound out of this console on a modern TV. They go through lots of different alternatives and different products you can buy Um, really, really in-depth, really worth watching if you're thinking about doing this but you're not sure where to start. Neat. Uh, Mine is also really simple and and short. Uh, Go watch some PUBG. Go watch some PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds. They added a new map, and that has changed the entire metagame. If you want to just go on Twitch, if you don't have a favorite Twitch streamer, just pick one at random. And watch them try to win PUBG. It's still good. It's a good time. Uh, You'll make friends maybe watching. Uh, And if you were watching some earlier in the year when it was more of a craze and you've you've faded out of it, the new map has actually uh, greatly impacted the way the game is played. And also, you can go check out how the game is being played on Xbox, which is um, not great. (laughs) <laughs> and, and you can you can watch that as well uh so normally we we just wrap up the episode here but i do have some announcements i have some announcements number one season two of the super jump podcast is on its way if you don't like us that much but you put yourself through listening to the podcast anyway uh you'll be happy to know that i'm heavily invested in changing it for the better there will be some uh some some changes in terms of format think of a more segmented podcast with certain segments we return to that is what is in store for the super jump podcast that will start in the first episode of 2018 so there's only one more episode in the current season uh speaking of that there are no more mid jumps this season either there will be no more mid jumps until the year 2018 it is something I can usually do. It is not something I can currently do. Um, I, I'm sorry I didn't have one last week. That's just how it is. Uh, there, I, I'm actually tooling with a new idea for what I want to do. Maybe I will still call it a mid-jump, but uh, keep an eye out for that. It, little tease right there. And finally, uh, James, do you want to talk about this last announce, uh, announcement? This was mostly you. Yeah, so we, uh, we're get now getting to the point where we're just looking to promote ourselves a little bit more and, and get the word out. Um, and so we've partnered with a really awesome YouTube channel. I think they were one of the um, after-school activities I recommended on this show as well at, at one stage. Um, Wrestling with Gaming, they do really awesome video game documentaries and their latest episode is all about the Atari NES, um, how the NES almost became Atari's console. It's a really... I had no idea about this thing. <laughs> I, had, I 
absolutely had no idea that the NES was almost Atari. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating point in Nintendo's history and, and particularly like their whole entrance into the Western market. Really, really pivotal time for Nintendo. And it's not something that seems to be really broadly covered. Like it, there aren't that many kind of videos and articles about this. So this is a really, really interesting one. Um, and so we, uh, we at Super Jump have, um, have sponsored this episode uh, and, and partnered with Wrestling in Gaming on this episode. And um, so he's just got a little shout out to us there. And um, yeah, we're, we're really proud of the video and really happy to support it. And I'm hoping that we can, um, you know, that we can kind of continue to, to partner with Wrestling with Gaming in the future. It's a really cool channel. Highly recommended. It, it is. Most people have some passing familiarity with the Nintendo PlayStation, but the Atari NES is kind of its own thing, and I, I really had no idea. It's a really cool video. Um, you'll you'll learn a lot. Uh, so until next time, please subscribe in your local podcatcher, wherever you get us, uh, wherever you're finding us. Make sure you're subscribed there so you get every episode. If you do that on iTunes please give us a review please 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 um again i know how many people listen to this show and i know that if you don't do it i'm gonna single you out specifically so (laughs) the singling out will start in 2018 but not but until then no i'm just kidding you don't have to but it would really help us it it, uh if anything even if you don't like the show it'll help us because you reviewed it and, and we like the feedback Um, And also, if you don't want to do that, you can just tell a friend about the show. So, until next time, that's not how it goes. We'll jump at you next time. Stay super.